Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you um, for a warm place to be able to meet. We thank you for cars to be able to get us here. We, We do ask for those who weren't able to make it, that you would comfort them and um, help them to enjoy your presence in their homes. Um, We ask, Lord, that you speak to us this morning. Lord, that you would help us to see you more clearly, to love you more dearly. Lord, may our love abound more and more because of you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you believe that holidays are just around the corner? Snow, snow tells us so, huh? <laughs> Thanksgiving is only four weeks away, folks. Four weeks away. And that is exciting. We, we love Thanksgiving in our house. I just love the, the smells as Jen and, and whoever's helping her is cooking the food and, and just the sound of fellowship in the house. It's so beautiful, and it's what I imagine it must have been like that evening in Bethany as Jesus and the disciples had come home or come to dinner. Martha had been cooking and making preparations all day. She and her siblings, Mary and Lazarus, the the Lazarus who Jesus had raised from the dead, had learned that Jesus was coming to town. And so they were giving a dinner in his honor, to lavish their love and appreciation on him. Around the table that evening were Jesus and his disciples, Simon the leper, whose house it was, and Lazarus. I don't know about you, but can you imagine what that conversation would have been like that evening? Here on one side of Jesus is a former leper, and on the other side of Jesus is a former corpse, what were they talking about? I mean, it had to have been amazing. There had to have been laughter, joy, tears, and just this profound sense of peace and, and warmth and comfort. At some moment during the evening, as Martha was serving and the men were around the table talking, Mary quietly approached Jesus, holding in her hands an alabaster bottle of this very fragrant and valuable oil, trembling without a word, seemingly oblivious to everyone else in the room, with tears in her eyes and her heart overflowing with affection and devotion, Mary carefully broke the jar and began pouring the oil over Jesus' head. It ran slowly down his hair and into his beard and then dripped onto his robes. And then she knelt down at his feet and, and carefully drizzled the remaining, the remainder of the oil over his feet. Her tears now flowing as freely as the oil, she then removed her head covering, loosed her long, dark hair, and tenderly wiped his feet with it. The aroma of the oil filled the room, the entire house, as everyone sat in stunned silence watching all of it take place. 
Some were stunned in appreciation. Some in bewilderment. And others in anger. Just then, the seemingly irritated voice of Judas fractured the silence. Why wasn't this fragrant oil sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? The atmosphere of that moment that was so holy was now filled with tension. The other disciples looked uneasily at each other, momentarily pondering Judas' question. And then they joined in his indignation. There goes Mary again with her over-the-top emotionalism. But this time it isn't just annoying, it's costly. And so they scolded Mary. What a waste. Don't you know the good this could have done, Mary? Mary stopped and looked sadly at the floor. Her holy moment of lavish love to Jesus had been disrupted with aggravation and accusation. A brief moment passed, and then Jesus interjected, not by validating the disciples' criticism, but by defending Mary. Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you'll always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you won't always have me. She's done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And so we do this morning. We come to one of the most vivid displays of human affection for the Lord recorded in Scripture. It's an incredibly intimate moment where Mary pours out her love for Jesus. It's what this story that not only John but Matthew and Mark include in their Gospels is all about. Affectionate, heartfelt love for Jesus. So how would you have reacted if you'd been there? I couldn't help but wonder how I would have responded in that situation. Would, would my affections have been such that I would have acted like Mary or Martha or Lazarus or the disciples or like Judas? It's really a question about my heart, my affections for Jesus. How is my heart level love doing for him. How is your heart level love for Jesus doing? Do you find yourself yearning for a deeper love and more lavish affections for him? Affections like those displayed by Mary? Now, I can superficially answer the question with the answer that I know is right. But am I being honest? You see, I tend to have a strong propensity toward the intellectual and works aspects of love while possessing a subtle aversion to the feelings and affections of it. Can any of you relate? 
Do you, like me, tend to want to embrace the head and hand parts of love while neglecting the heart aspects of love for Jesus? Affections and emotions like Mary expressed in this passage. I need to clarify what I mean, and I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. I'm not talking about different personality types. Some people are very outwardly passionate, emotive people. Others are quieter, more cerebral, and still others action-oriented. Several weeks ago, I was out in the foyer antechamber thing out there with Marcus talking to a couple who were visiting for the first time. Kurt had preached that morning, and so the couple was inquiring as to what the rest of us were like. It was pretty entertaining listening to Marcus explain. Well, Bill, he's very cerebral and academic in his preaching, and and Wolf, very quiet and gentle. And then there's Jason. (laughs) Well, he's pretty passionate, loud, emotive. Only, so, so one style is not better than another because it's what we're like. It's our personality. And John isn't implying here that one personality type or expression of love is better or righter than another. He isn't contrasting Martha's act of love of serving or Lazarus' act of love by sitting at the table with Jesus with Mary's emotive act of love. It's not about how they love, but whether they love. This story is about what's going on in their hearts. It's about their underlying affections. I mean, Judas' response doesn't seem all that bad, does it? I mean, come on. On the surface, it seems downright good, noble, right? I mean, caring for the poor, that's a good thing. Jesus spoke often of its importance. And I think that's probably why the disciples sided with Judas. But this story isn't about feeding the poor or proper stewardship. It's about the condition of their hearts. You see, this supposed act of righteous anger by Judas was devoid of righteous motives. His objection didn't arise out of heartfelt love for the poor or Jesus or the Father. And John tells us in verse 6, Judas said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Judas's lips praised Jesus, but his heart was far from him. Contrast this with Mary's gift. Yes, it was tremendously valuable, but that isn't the point because Jesus wasn't able to keep it for a rainy day. He only had a week of life left. The worth of the gift is symbolic of what her heartfelt love for him was like. It was a token of her love. Just like the Christmas present that I received from Katie in 2012. I remember that for several weeks leading up to Christmas Day, when I would get home from work, I'd have to knock on the door. Hold on! Wait outside in the cold, it'll be okay. Well, unbeknownst to me, 
I, I knew something was going on, but I didn't know what. Katie was working her little 12-year-old fingers to the bone, crocheting me this extravagant, beautiful blanket. When Christmas morning finally arrived and I opened it, I bawled like a baby. Why? Because I realized how personal and sacrificial the gift was, that it was a token of her love for me. The blanket symbolized the depth of her love. And that's what Mary's gift is doing here. It's a vivid outward symbol of her inward affection for Jesus. And that's what's being contrasted in this story. The heart attitudes, the affections of Judas and the disciples with those of Mary. Now I recognize that Judas wasn't a true follower of Jesus. He joined in with Jesus' ministry to further his own agenda. Jesus was simply a tool to obtain his own selfish desires and end to his means. But the condition of his heart and his response are still very instructive for those of us who are true believers, just as it was for the disciples who were true believers, but sided with Judas. Their initial response didn't mean that they were unbelievers like him, but that their priorities were askew. Their motivations were good. Their understanding of feeding the poor was correct. But their affection for Jesus that day was lacking. So often I feel like the disciples, I can feel my heart felt love for Jesus waning the intensity of my affections not being nearly what they should considering his worth. Mary's overflowing affection and Jesus' affirmation of it was meant to be a positive example for the disciples and for me and for you. It's intended to be a picture of heartfelt love for Jesus that we, by her example, might desire and aspire to increase our heartfelt love for Jesus because he is worthy. That's the exhortation for this morning. To desire and aspire to increase your heartfelt love for Jesus because he's worthy. It's been my prayer for myself all week, for you all week, that your love would abound more and more, that the depth of your love would more closely correspond to his worth. Now let me reiterate that this is not about personality types. It's about what's going on in our hearts and our affections. It's not about how we express those affections. It's about... It's not about our personality type or how you or I display our love for Christ, but it's about increasing our affection for Christ. This is, after all, part and parcel with the greatest commandment. When asked which commandment is the most important of all, Jesus responded, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul 
and with all your mind and with all your strength. Notice the adjectives that is repeated four times. All. You shall love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. This statement is what's called a mirrorism. It's a literary tool where the various parts that are described, heart, soul, mind, strength, signify the whole. In this case, it's the whole, the entirety of you. In other words, love him with the entirety of your inmost being, your thoughts and your affections. Love him with the entirety of your outermost being, your actions, and with the entirety of all that you possess. Love the Lord with all that you are and all that you have because he's worthy of your all. Loving God with our all means that he is our supreme treasure and our supreme pleasure. But like I said, I, as a more doctrinally inclined believer, tend to place greater emphasis on the head and hands aspects of love than I do the heart. It's not that these other aspects of love are unimportant or unnecessary. They're absolutely essential in loving Jesus. But focusing on them to the neglect of the other results in an imbalanced and incomplete love. David Mathis says, the full-orbed Christian existence is multidimensional. We are summoned to think and love and do. We are summoned to think and love and do all to the glory of God in Christ and not diminish any of the three. You see, I put great effort into having correct doctrine. Any of y'all relate? Walking obediently, any of y'all relate? Which we should all do. But then sometimes I mistakenly infer that these are the sum and substance of my Christian walk. Ironically, nothing could be further from the truth. The problem with this is that my walk becomes more like a list of truths and deeds than of heartfelt love for Jesus, praising lips with a distant heart. The goal of right thinking about God is right relationship with God. And the manifestation of right thinking and right relationship is right living. In other words, good theology ought to compel greater affection for him. Good theology ought to point us to relationship with Jesus, to worship him, to love him all the more. And as those affections increase, then they'll overflow in my actions that will glorify him. As Jonathan Edwards writes, True religion, in great part, consists in holy affection. For although to true religion there must indeed be something else besides affection, 
Yet true religion consists so much in the affections that there can be no true religion without them. These heartfelt affections are found throughout Scripture. Just a tasting of them, Paul says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He prays that believers may love may abound more and more in knowledge and discernment. Peter exhorts, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And David could have used a lot of David's psalms this morning. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. As Charles Swindoll says, being a Christian is about loving Christ so much that you want to know him, so much that you want to exalt him, so much that you want to please him, so much that you want to serve him, so much that you want to be with him, so much that you want to tell others about him. It's about this overwhelming, consuming affection for Christ. This is at the core of what it means to be a Christian. It's about this overwhelming, consuming affection Christ. So I ask once again, how is my, how is your heart level love for Jesus doing this morning? Now this isn't an all or nothing question. Either your affections must be as strong and lavish as Mary's or your Judas. It's not that simple, is it? And it never will be. If we're honest with ourselves, we all probably find ourselves somewhere on a pendulum between these two poles. And we're constantly moving on that pendulum, aren't we? Being a little more like Mary today and a little more like Judas tomorrow. Our affections for Jesus wax and wane, as does our love for him in proportion to them. Much of the time I find myself lacking this overwhelming, consuming affection for Christ that Mary was lauded for and the scripture encourages. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's reality, this side of eternity. But what's not okay is if I'm content with the lack of affection, and I don't desire more. I need a deeper love and greater affection for Jesus. I yearn for the intensity of my affections to be consistent with the value of his perfections. I need to seek to increase my heartfelt love for Jesus because he's worthy. So how can I, how can we do this? How can we strive to increase, to intensify these affections? 
Well, I see three ways modeled in this passage. We can strive to increase our affections by contemplating, communing with, and celebrating Him. We can strive to increase our affections, number one, by contemplating the worth of Jesus. How did Mary understand these things when the disciples didn't? By often contemplating who Jesus is and what he came to do. One essential way that we can increase our affections for someone is by contemplating who they are and what they've done. By spending time doing in-depth research on them and reflecting, meditating on their life and character. Now, everyone does this. And they do it regarding the things or people they most treasure. Take, for instance, the recent pop cultural moment with Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. It's crazy, isn't it? That's what football games are. It's, is she going to be there this week? Since Taylor, get this, first attended one of Travis's games, his Instagram following has increased from 1.1 million to 3.9 million followers. Jersey sales have spiked more than 400%. Chiefs games viewership has increased by 27 million people. His podcast is now the number one listened podcast to podcast in all of America. Number one. And internet searches for him increased so much that he is now the third most searched public figure in the United States. Number one is, guess who? Taylor Swift. <laughs> Why did this happen? Because of the Swifties. They are so devoted to her that though most of them weren't football fans and had probably never heard the name Travis Kelsey before a month and a half ago, they want to know everything about Taylor. Even if it means spending hours searching the web to know what her possible boyfriend is like. By doing so, they come to know and understand her and grow in their affection for her. The same is true of us. The more time we spend trying to know and understand who Jesus is and what he's done, the more we reflect on him, the greater our affections will be for him. We see this in the life of Mary. One of the most important words in this passage is one we've probably all overlooked. It's the word therefore, verse 3. Mary, therefore. Mary's affections here are tied to something that Jesus has already said or already done. Now, we can refer to any number of previous events, but I think this is specifically referring to what happened in chapter 11. Remember that Jesus took her brother and, from the dead and raised him to life. That's pretty significant. And so Mary has seen firsthand, experienced firsthand the power of Jesus. Now, before he raised him, while Mary was in tears, Jesus came by her side and wept with her. 
And so she had experienced firsthand the compassion of Jesus. And then there were the words of Jesus to her and her sister. Jesus had clearly communicated to them that their brother's death was for a greater purpose. And what was that greater purpose? That they would see and understand and believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, that whoever believes in him, though they die, yet shall they live. Mary had contemplated these words, as well as all the other things that she had heard about Jesus and from Jesus. And so she not only understood who he was, but what he had come to do. And so she realized why Jesus was traveling through Bethany because he was heading to Jerusalem, to the cross for the Passover, to give his life for her so that she and Martha and Lazarus would be reconciled to God and live forever. She, in that moment, knew that this was the last time she would see Jesus before he was executed. And it was the last opportunity that she would have to anoint Jesus for it. Listen again to Jesus' words. Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The wording is interesting here. It could actually be, she has kept it for the day of my burial. You won't always have me, Jesus said. She's done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. So Mary had been saving this oil for this moment, that she might anoint Jesus for the day of his burial. Mary knew this day was coming, the last time that she would see Jesus before he gave his life for her. And so she made preparations to anoint his body for death. Because she had contemplated Jesus' character, his words and work that he came to do, her heartfelt love for him grew, manifesting itself in this glorious moment. Thinking, contemplating Jesus is for the sake of loving him. It's a means to loving him. Spend time thinking of the excellencies and perfections of Christ's character. Meditate often on the matchless love that he displayed for you in the cross. He loves you. He died for you. He lived for you. Read and study and contemplate the scriptures. This is where you see him most clearly, enabling you to love him more dearly. As Spurgeon writes, I must know him as the word reveals him. I must know his natures, divine and human. I must know his offices, his attributes, his works, his shame, his glory. 
I must meditate upon him until I comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Number two, we can increase our affections by communing with him. How did Mary understand these things when the disciples didn't? By being often in the place that we find her right now. The first place we see Mary mentioned in Scripture, Luke 10, she's described as sitting at the Lord's feet and listening to his teaching. The next time we see her in Scripture is when Martha tells her that Jesus has arrived in town. And when Mary heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. And that when Mary got to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. And finally, we see her here where she once again is at Jesus' feet. Where did Mary get her heartfelt affection? By sitting at Jesus' feet. She drew near to him, communed with him, talked with him, and listened to him. How do we increase our affections for Jesus? By drawing near to him, sitting at his feet in prayer and meditation. We must live near to Jesus in his presence, ripened by the sunshine of his smiles, said, said Spurgeon. We must hold sweet communion with him. We must leave the distant view of his face and come near and pillow our head on his breast. Then shall we find ourselves advancing in holiness, in love, in faith, in hope. Mm. Pillow your head on his breast. Fall at his feet. Seek intimacy with him. Pour out your heart to him. Drink deeply of his soul-satisfying waters. Another quote from Spurgeon, because it's just good. Much alone, and you will have much assurance. Little alone with Jesus, your religion will be shallow, polluted with many doubts and fears, and not sparkling with the joy of the Lord. Oh, the delights of fellowship with Jesus. Earth has no words which can set forth the holy calm of a soul leaning on Jesus' bosom. Few Christians understand it. They live in the lowlands and seldom climb to the top of Nebo. They live in the outer court. They enter not the holy place. Sit thou ever under the shadow of Jesus. Come up to that palm tree and take hold of the branches thereof. Let thy beloved be unto thee as an apple tree among the trees of the wood, and you shall be satisfied with the marrow and fatness. Come, my soul, sit at Jesus' feet and learn of him all this day. Number three, we can strive to increase our affections by celebrating him. Now on Tuesday night, Jonathan, my son, and I went to a huge celebration. It was the banner raising and the ring ceremony for the champion nuggets. Woo! Yeah. 20,000 of us 
screamed our full heads off, filling the air with deafening applause as each of the guys came out and received their ring. The two lattice, of course, were Jamal, and then Joker came out, MVP, MVP. The entire stadium celebrated spontaneously for each of them because of their skills and what they had meant to us as fans by winning the championship. And then we all sang, we are the champions, as the banner was raised. Just like contemplating something or someone we treasure is common to all of us, so is celebrating, honoring, praising that something or someone. The world rings with praise, said C.S. Lewis. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, snow, yeah, wines, dishes, actors, cars, colleges, countries, children, flowers, and mountains. Except where intolerably adverse circumstances interfere, Praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. Inner health made audible. All enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. Why? Well, Lewis tells us why. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. The praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. Celebrating those we treasure completes our joy and affection for them as it did here for Mary, Martha, and now Lazarus. They held a dinner to honor Jesus, to celebrate him. Martha cooked probably like she had never cooked before, making everything perfect for that evening. Why? as an overflow of her affections in celebration of Jesus. Lazarus apparently found the completion of his affection by, for Jesus by praising, celebrating Jesus in front of everybody. We're told that a large crowd of Jews gathered in Bethany, not only because of Jesus, but also Lazarus, because on account of him, Many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Now, in what has to be one of the funniest lines in all of Scripture, John tells us that because of this influence of Lazarus, the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Did you catch that? Hey, we need to put to death the guy who was just raised from the dead. 
Huh? But wasn't he just dead? Yeah. And do you think that maybe by him dying a second time, then he will be like dead forever? Well, we hope so. I mean, what else can we do if death doesn't work? That's the question I was going to ask you. I'm not so sure how well you thought this through. Lazarus couldn't help but celebrate the one who raised him to life as the consummation of his heartfelt love and adoration. And how did Mary understand these things when the disciples didn't? By expressing her love for Jesus in celebration. Mary's act here was also the consummation of her overflowing affection for him. Jesus was infinitely worthy of all she was and of all she had. And to celebrate him one more time was the perfect completion of her heartfelt love for him. So too with us. Celebration is the completion of our affections. And it also increases them, doesn't it? Worship, praise, honor, adoration for Jesus not only completes our joy, but it enhances it. It's what we have opportunity to do every day, to celebrate Jesus, to pour out our affections for him in song, in prayer, in shouting, and especially on days like today and every Sunday, to join together with one heart and one voice with all the saints to praise Jesus and celebrate Jesus. Sundays are great. So we get to come together and we get to be like those fans at that stadium. And we get to lift his banner high as we praise him. We get to shout and praise Jesus out of our love for him and what he's done for us. We all need a deeper love and greater affection for Jesus like Mary. We do. It is my prayer that you yearn for and seek to increase your heartfelt love for Jesus by contemplating, communing with, and celebrating him. Let's pray. That is our prayer this morning, Lord. I want to love you more. Each and every person in here who believes in you wants to love you more. Lord, intensify our affection for you. May you become a greater treasure, a 
better pleasure. Everything that we need is in you. Increase our desires, O Lord, to love you. And then fill those desires that you have created with yourself. And we would love you more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.